If you want to support this podcast and get a full ad-free episode, sign up to Headstuff Plus. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of I Know That Face, the only podcast which honestly often underappreciated by the masses work of character actors. My name is Stephen Porzio. My name is Andrew Carroll. Today we are discussing John Carpenter regular and horror legend Donald Pleasance. Andrew. Donald Pleasance was born in 1919 in Worksop, England. Horrible name for a town. He became an actor at 20 in 1939. He was initially a conscientious objector, but he joined the RAF in 1940 after witnessing the devastation of the London Blitz. He was shot down and captured in 1944 and cool. continued acting in his prisoner of war camp before his yes. rescue. Yeah, Dunkirk Metal too. as fuck. Initially a stage actor, he started his career in TV in 1946 and had his film debut in 1954. He appeared on shows like 1984, The Outer Limits, Columbo and Mrs. Columbo. Prior to his late career resurgence in horror films, he was best known for playing the forger Colin Blythe in The Great Escape and Ernst Stavro Blofeld in the Sean Connery Bond film You Only Live Twice. The role of Dr. Samuel Loomis in Halloween 1, 2, 4, 5 and 6 changed his career and made him a horror icon. He went on to appear in John Carpenter's Escape from New York and Prince of Darkness, 1979's Dracula and Dario Argento's sci-fi giallo phenomena, which is itself a phenomena or phenomenon. It certainly is. Yeah. He died in 1995, shortly after completing Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers. And with 238 credits on IMDb, Pleasance's massive filmography came about because he reportedly never turned down a role. <laughs> Do you think, you know, the way people complained about um, them rebooting Ghostbusters with, you know, a female cast? Yeah, yeah. Do you think people were complaining about Mrs. Columbo? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, a f- fierce letter writing campaign, I bet, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you pitch Pleasance. Um, what is it about Donald you find so fascinating? It's the voice, I think. Before, uh, like my first proper experience with like a horror movie was when I was 15, not 15, when I was like 19 and I went to see The Babadook in uh, like around Halloween uh, in my first year of college and it scared the shit out of me. But it led to like me loving horror films, like loving the feeling of being scared and also knowing that I'm safely away from them because they're behind yes. the screen um, but before that there was a there was that show on Channel 4 E4 one of those called you know uh, Top 100 Moments in Horror and Donald I didn't watch all of it but uh, the one that sticks in my mind the most is a little public service announcement by the BBC or a CIA or whoever uh, CIE not CIA in Britain CIE the transport company? No not the Irish one the British one okay. yeah um, called The Spirit of Dark and Lonely Water and he voices um, the spirit, which is like this brown cloaked figure, that lo- faceless ghost that lures children to their deaths in uh, dark and lonely water. And uh, it scared the shit out of me. And it was my first pro- experience with uh, horror of any kind. And it, I think it was also my dad's because I think the ad played here in the 70s. And I think it was made in 1973. And uh, like it's different from any other public service announcement you'll ever see because it's it's a minute and a half horror movie, essentially. That inv- that has children drown. Like, we have Westlife to tell us not to get in water. We have Nicky Byrne saying, remember to learn how to swim. And instead, the, the BBC were like, let's get Donald Pleasance to give children nightmares for 40 years. That's so funny. I remember being scared of there was a car crash ad where a family were playing in their garden. Oh, and yeah, a car yeah. comes into their back garden and, like, lands Flips on the kid. Over, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
I suppose it is kind of similar because obviously we have the RSA ads that are like body horror and gore. Yeah. And or there's one where... Uh, Gay Burns ghost saying, <laughs> don't drink and drive. Yeah, there's one where a girl is kissing her boyfriend yeah, and then yeah. he gets hit by a car and she's just pinned. Yeah, and then it cuts to her in a wheelchair in the cemetery. And you're like, what the fuck is yeah, wrong with is these really people? Nasty. What yeah. psycho made this? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the first in our three-part horror series to drop around Halloween this year um, with each episode focusing on character actors and horror genre favourites. I picked one, you picked two, mm. and uh, while we're guestless on this episode, we will have two really cool guests lined up in the coming weeks. But uh, you can't know who they are in case they bail on us. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but back to puzzles. I really enjoyed uh, prepping for this episode. Um, it was great to revisit those three brilliant John Carpenter movies for the mm. first time since I was a teen, and r- really watching so much of Pleasance's oeuvre over a Ooh. short period of time. Um, you really get to see how many influential people he worked with, yeah. and how many influential franchises or properties he was involved in because like Three Carpenters and Argento in his prime film a pretty well respected Dracula adaptation and a much acclaimed Twilight Zone episode like they're great credits to have and um, I will say because this is a horror episode and we we mainly wanted to focus on the Carpenters we won't be talking about some of Pleasance's other acclaimed non-horror films like The Great Escape or Wake and Fright or George Lucas's debut um, Thanks 1138 Mm -hmm. or Bonflick, You Only Live Twice, where he played Blofeld and his portrayal of which was a massive influence on Dr. Evil yeah. in Austin Powers, yeah. particularly the massive facial scar, which was Pleasance's idea for Blofeld. So we have him to thank for, you know, all those great scenes of Dr. and Scott Evil hanging out. <laughs> or he's talking about his childhood and he's like, it was a pretty standard childhood. My mother was a 15-year-old French prostitute named Chloe with webbed feet. <laughs> when my dad got drunk, he'd make outrageous claims like he invented the question mark. <laughs> Great movie. Um, but while we're not talking about those Carpenter movies I mentioned, um, on this podcast, like we could revisit them again. Our podcast is malleable if there's a demand for yeah, it. You know? yeah. uh, so let's get into the Carpenters. Donald um, Pleasance, daytime edition. <laughs> Do you want to talk about Halloween? Because I think you're a big fan and you talked about its recent sequel in our Judy Greer episode. Yeah, yeah. John Carpenter's 1978 slasher film. Seminal. Seminal, yes. Not the first slasher film, but certainly the one that proved that slashers were the kind of juggernaut to push horror into the mainstream. I met him 15 years ago. I was told there was nothing left. No reason no uh, conscience, no understanding, and even the most rudimentary sense of life or death, of, of good or evil, right or wrong. I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I spent eight years trying to reach him, and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. Uh, And Donald Pleasance plays Dr. Samuel Loomis, who is a psychiatrist obsessed with the mass murderer Michael Myers, and he's he's obsessed with keeping him locked up, or, if if he can't do that, killing him, in order to uh, keep this evil person away from society. Because, like he says in the... um, the start he's explaining why Michael Myers is so evil and he's just describing his eyes and he's like he has the blackest eyes the devil's eyes so he's a man kind of he's playing a man driven to the edge by his inability to understand let alone control this force of pure evil basically and it's kind of the start of his like 
arc through the John Carpenter movies where he just plays a guy who is totally out of their depth in a situation they just have no control over. And uh, he's, um, I think, like, I haven't seen any of the other Halloween movies apart from the sequel that Judy Greer was in, came out in 2018. Um, so I don't really know about uh, his role in Halloween 2, 4, 5, or 6. Um, I just know this Halloween. I've only seen the fifth one because... And lead actors went, went to Hearthon one year and I was oh, I watched yeah, it to yeah, complete yeah. it. It yeah. uh, wasn't very good. Uh, <laughs> he's kind of like, of these three Carpenter characters, he's kind of the most proactive and confident of them. Uh, though it's easy, it's very easy to see how terrified he is of uh, Michael Myers because he's like, um, he has great eyes and a great voice, great I think. Because uh, even when it's totally dark, almost totally dark, and he's like lit mostly in shadow because his like he's looked old for a long time and so he's uh like a writer once said uh terence pettigrew wrote like his eyes are mournful but they can also be sinister or seedy or just plain nutty he has the kind of piercing stare that lifts enamel off saucepans yeah it's a good it's a great quote and um it's true because for a lot of that movie like he's either going left right up down diagonally or he's like very still especially in scenes after he's visited one of the crime scenes that Michael Myers has perpetrated and he's just so so sad that he couldn't stop it I, it, like, I read a, an interview with him I think it was after Halloween 5 which was 1989 I think and um, he, he said about the character because he had played him in four movies at that point he was like stopping Michael is Loomis's mission in life and because Michael is out there Loomis is not a nutcase yelling about the boogeyman it's just that nobody believes Loomis until Michael shows up and then it's too late. And that just kind of perpetuates this cycle of like obsession and grief and sadness. And uh, he only took the role because his daughter, who was a guitarist, really liked Carpenter's score for Assault on Precinct 13. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. Dun, 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 dun. Great score. Game recognized game. Yep. And uh, we could have had Peter Cushing or Christopher Lee, two other horror icons in the role. They both turned it down. And Lee later said it was the worst career mistake he ever made. Yeah. And it, it, it's the movie that kind of put him on a career trajectory as a horror icon and uh, you know made him much like Kurt Russell or Nancy Keyes or Keith David and Adrian Barbu he he became one of John Carpenter's regulars and uh, he's probably the person that's appeared most in the majority of the Halloween movies because he's physically in five of them and he has sound alikes in two and apparently he's going to be CGI'd into Halloween Kills which you know Yeah. Yeah. I thought the last one was so good, but it it was it felt like perfect ending. I don't know why they're doing two more. But yeah. I don't know. They they did it good once. They could do do it good again. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I think Pleasance is doing a couple of extraordinary things on Halloween because he's essentially Michael Myers's hype man. You know what I mean? Like yeah, Pleasance is yeah, the reason sure. yeah. that when Michael returns to Haddonfield, the audience gets the sense that this isn't just your regular sanatorium yeah, escapee yeah. on the loose like so many. Um, weaker copies of Halloween that came out after. Yeah, this is literally the human embodiment of evil. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And and it's accentuated in the way Carpenter places him in the mise en scène, kind of always lurking in the background, and because of the mask, which is in that uncanny valley yeah. thing where it looks like a human face but not quite. Yeah, it almost looks like James Tiberius Kirk, but it's not. Oh, but also those long monologues like Pleasant gives could be very silly and hammy in yeah, another actor's yeah, hands. Yeah. Like Loomis says at one point, I watched him for 15 years sitting in a room, staring at a wall, not seeing the wall, looking past the wall, looking at this night inhumanly, patient, waiting for some secret silent alarm to trigger him off, 
death has come to your little town, Sheriff. Now you can either ignore it or you can help me stop it. And on the page, it could seem like this psychiatrist is projecting yeah. a lot onto this yeah, kid. Yeah. Uh, but you never get the impression when you're watching Pleasance because he naturally looks like someone haunted, someone wrestling yeah, with the weight yeah. of the world, especially here with the vein popping out yeah. of his bald yeah. head. Yeah. <laughs> you know, And he's delivering all these lines of foreshadowing and exposition, but he still feels like a person with an interior life. Yeah. Like there's little moments that he's kind of funny. There's that scene with the, he is waiting outside Michael's childhood home because he thinks Michael's going to return. Dressed as Columbo. Dressed as Columbo. <laughs> and then there are the kids who are going on their own Halloween adventure. Like, oh, oh we'll break yeah. into he's the... Like, get away, get away. <laughs> he's like, get away, Timmy. And he's oh, yeah. talking through the bushes. Get your butt out of here, yeah, Timmy. Yeah. And he kind of laughs to himself and then the sheriff comes behind him and gives him a fright. Yeah. It's really funny. Also... His look at the end of the film is probably why Halloween has lingered so long in the public consciousness. Because yeah, yeah. spoilers are, he shoots Michael Myers yeah. six times. He falls through a window. And when Loomis looks out the window, Michael's body is gone. Yeah. And instead of Loomis being outwardly terrified, it's a look that's more like, this is what I feared. Yeah. And almost a grim acceptance of like, this is my life now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, It's my mission to yeah. stop Michael. And that combined with the montage of different places in Haddonfield with, with no one with, there just but just the breathing, his breathing yeah, in the background yeah. indicating he could be anywhere like that's why we're still talking about Halloween today yeah, sure, yeah. and is probably almost too effective as a sequel stinger because no sequel can ever live up to that yeah. you know what I mean yeah, it's, it's more true. fun in your head to imagine what could happen than yeah. actually depicting it yeah. you know yeah. what I mean and then they do all the stupid stuff in Halloween where it's like Oh, he was part of a blood cult, yeah. or oh, he's related oh, to Laurie Strode, Laurie Strode yeah, and yeah. which they all ditch um, yeah. in the recent reboot, which is why it was good. Thank God, yeah. Um, we jump on to Escape from New York, then. Yes. Can't you shoot off the lock? No, sir. She's pressurized the cabin. How about lifting the door off with the hinges? No, sir. Get me to the pot. Probably the smallest role of the Three Carpenters, but I argue it is very pivotal pivotal to the movie's themes and the character of Snake Plissken, who's yeah. the lead, the, yeah. the anti-hero yeah. of the movie. Yeah. Do you want to break down the plot? Yeah, so um, in 1987, the Manhattan after a 400% increase in crime, <laughs> Manhattan Island is turned into a maximum, secur- maximum security prison and is in, encased by, by a 50-foot concrete wall and then there's water on the other side, so, you know... It's bad news, bad news if you try to escape. Kind of like a bigger, much bigger version of Alcatraz. And then flash forward to the far-flung future year of 1997. <laughs> and uh, the Air Force One is travelling over Manhattan Island and uh, is boarded by guerrillas and the president is shot out of an escape pod into the prison uh, with a tape containing nuclear secrets. And the president is Donald Pleasance. The president is Donald Pleasance, yeah. And then... Former soldier and uh, convicted Federal Reserve robber <laughs> Snake Plissken, played by C- Kurt Russell, is uh, sent into the prison by a guy called, I think it's Ben Hawk. It's played by Lee Van Cleef. So good in the yeah. movie. It's one mistake the movie makes is just sticking Lee Van Cleef behind a microphone for the whole thing. Because ah, ah, ah. you'd said this to me before I rewatched it. He does have the scene at the beginning where he goes into the place. And that guy comes out with Donald Pleasance's finger and he's like, I'm going to kill him. He's like, you better get out of here right now. 20, 19, 18. And Lee Cleave, Van Cleave's like, get out of here, guys. <laughs> that's not action, though. Yeah, that's, that's just true. him that's talking to someone. Yeah. Checkmate, Stephen. You come <laughs> for the king. Cool you come for the king. Scene. You better not miss. It's a cool standoff um, scene. <laughs> yeah. And Snake is sent in to rescue him. And the plot 
takes place from there. The plot thickens. The plot thickens. Is that a soup metaphor? Anyway. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, he's another man totally out of his depth in a situation he's not prepared for. And he's probably the most helpless and pathetic and dislikable of the three Carpenter <laughs> characters he plays. Uh, yeah, and by the time Snake finds him, after he's been taken prisoner by the Duke, he's played by Isaac Hayes. Great. You might know from the Shaft soundtrack or as Chef in South Park. He's kind of, he's a scared, bruised shell of his former self. And he's kind of like this criticism of Nixon and maybe Reagan as well, because the movie didn't come out until 1981. It was written in 1976 in response to the Watergate scandal. But uh, yeah, it's just like a criticism of like, of these presidents who could barely stand to be in the same room as like uh, working people or working class people or people that they couldn't for whatever reason empathize with and let alone talk to the people talk to these people that they were supposed to represent and uh, it's kind of like it has a lot of the ideas that the better film they live would have six years later and i think obviously we're talking about horror movies this episode and while escape from new york might not be a horror film to us i think it's more of like a sci-fi action kind of thing to a lot of people it's definitely a horror movie for the president donald pleasance's character because he is just stuck in this hellhole that he might not have created, but his administration is running and is putting loads of people mm. into. And like, there's the guy, there's like the henchman of one of the gangs who just has filed teeth and his hair is stuck up. <laughs> and it's like a villain from some kind of Dragon Ball the Z warriors horror anime. Or yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the warriors. Yeah, yeah. He's he's essentially more of a bargaining chip than a man by the time by the time he's rescued. And it does say a lot that the only kind of bit of action he is he actively takes part in is where he shoots a black man to death <laughs> from the top of a wall. Surrounded by his own soldiers, and it's him, him getting revenge because they played William Tell with on his head. Yeah, yeah. And they kept making him say, "You're the what's the quote like? It's like, um, you're the Duke. You're number one. Oh yeah, yeah. And yeah. then when he shoots the Duke and gets his revenge, he keeps going, "You're the Duke. You're number one." <laughs> as he's shooting him, which is kind of great. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, like at the end of the movie, when you know, spoiler alert, he kills the Duke uh, after he's rescued by Snake. And, uh, you know, three people die in the rescue attempt. Three three important characters. I won't say who they are, but um, uh, they're very good. Um, and all he can say is like, oh, well, you know, we have, we have, the United States appreciates their sacrifice. And he can't even offer some yeah, kind of personal message. Yeah, and he's looking at a mirror at the same time. Yeah, and he's yeah. being shaved because he's preparing for his presentation. His big he, speech, yeah. He seems so insincere. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And that's what I like with the movie because... I was watching the performance and I, I thought it was a little bit strange how of a, almost a non-entity he was. Yeah. Like he's a MacGuffin in yeah. the movie and a lot of, and he, I think he, he has a, a gravitas that I think p- playing a fictional present you used to have to have. Yeah. Pre-Trump. Yeah, sure. yeah. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Not like lately we've had like Bob Odenkirk and yeah. Longshot or yeah. Bruce Greenwood and like the Kingsman sequel where yeah. they're kind of subverting that. But like it used to be that you have to be very solemn to play mm. present and he has that vibe. And then when he's in the uh, on the island, it's mostly just fear and terror, and he's like stuttering and he's yeah. like shivering. I hadn't seen it since I was a kid, and I was wondering, is, does it become like a buddy movie between him and Snake? Yeah, because that tends to happen in these kind of movies, like Olympus has fallen or White House Down or stuff like that. And I love the movie, and I was like a little bit weirded out by just because we were watching it for Pleasance, and I was thinking like, how am I going to talk about this performance? Yeah. But I think that scene at the end is so perfect because. You know, as he says, he's about to go on TV and he's like, anything you want, Snake, let me know. And he's yeah. like, a lot of people die trying to save you. How do you feel about that? And he's like, well, the country appreciates their sacrifice. Anyway, I'm going on TV yeah. now. <laughs> Bye. And it's 
basically why Snake went from being a decorated soldier to being the type of person who tried to rob the Federal Reserve. Yeah, you totally, know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's that's why he's so anti-authority, yeah. why he's so anti-government, yeah. why he he's, has to be kind of coerced even into taking this operation. Yeah. The beginning uh, of the movie. Yeah, and I love the bit at the end of the film where he tells uh, Lee Van Cleef at the start he's going to kill him at the end of these 24 hours. And at the end of the movie, Lee Van Cleef is like, you're going to kill me now, Snake? And yeah. Snake goes, uh, not now. I'm too tired. Maybe later. And walks <laughs> off. Great. It's unreal. Um, hey, we talk about Prince of Darkness then. We yeah. do the carpenters. Yeah, we'll do the three carpenters, yeah. I'm asking you to stay the work that we do in the next 48 hours is critical. How many of you have fallen asleep tonight? Come on, please, tell me. Come on, please. You dreamed. You dreamed about the front of this church. About a, a dark figure coming out. Didn't you... Didn't you feel it? Not like a dream. Like something else. I need to talk about that amazing intro where Pleasance is bringing so much haunted energy yeah, without yeah. even saying anything because over this like moody, spooky synth score by Carpenter. All, all of the scores in all his movies are fantastic. So good. Uh, we see a priest die in bed holding a tiny box. Yeah. Pleasance arrives as a grey-faced another priest with bags under his eyes and you really get a sense that this is a man who's seen things mm. and starts looking through the dead man's possessions, finds the box, opens it and we see it contains a big key. And uh, we see him consulting with higher priests, typing a letter about a most unusual phenomena. Turns out the key leads to this abandoned church, opening a secret passageway. And at the same time as all this, we're, see- we're cutting between the other main characters and seeing all these weird occurrences, like insects swarming, the moon half out in day, the light of yeah. the sun being like incredibly harsh on the character's eyes. And even without knowing anything, you know, like oh, something's wrong, like the world is For like sure, off its yeah. axis or yeah. something. Turns out this priest who died belonged to a mysterious sect. The Brotherhood of Sleep. And that Pleasance has found the strain vat containing a green liquid in, in this abandoned church. So Pleasance contacts a group of physics graduate students to investigate it. And unfortunately, they discovered that the liquid contains the essence of Satan himself. Yeah. <laughs> and they also discovered that he will release his father, an all-powerful anti-god. Mm. Um, this is before the liquid later comes to life, turning some of the students into zombies as the devil comes forward to release his father. Yeah. What do you think of Prince of Darkness? It's kind of the underrated one of the three. Yeah, I think, yeah, it's the one I like. I definitely like it. I think I actually like it more than both. Me too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I do disagree with you on the point that Donald Pleasance's character is like, I, do, I think it's just because he's showing his age at that point of uh, his career i don't think he's i don't think he's a priest that's seen things i think he's more of a more of a father Karras, like in the guy in the exorcist Maybe, yeah. yeah he's kind of like a an administrator kind of put into field thrust into field work with no real preparation like an, again another out of his depth person like the president and dr samuel loomis he's kind of like he knows about you know he's a priest he knows about satan he knows about the devil and how he works in mysterious ways. Um, but as a man, and perhaps as a priest as well, he's never ha- had to reckon with the reality of like of a religious even or even of a religious evil or even a, a world conquering evil. And finding it incomprehensible, he reaches out to scientists. This meeting of the minds. That's true. Yeah, I did. I do get a vibe like if they did this, the Brotherhood of Sleep. How many other versions of this yeah, might he have yeah. to investigate yeah. or something like that? <laughs> 
while you're talking about there's that um, other kind of pivotal scene that um, he's great in and his line delivery is amazing where he's talking about feeling betrayed you know by the institution they spent his whole life devoted to that they would hide something this massive from him and the world and he says uh, it was more convenient this way man would stay at the center of things stupid lie we were salesmen we sold a product to those who didn't have it it's like amazing it's like Denzel Washington yeah. Line delivery. Or uh, Marlon Brando in Apocalypse Now. You're an errand boy. Yeah, yeah. Sent by clerks to collect a bill. I do think, though, uh, uh, this is the movie where he's a bit pushed to the background. But yeah, I think for the sure, movie's yeah. already quite overstuffed with characters. So yeah. I'm happy to just have him as a, a fine garnish. Yeah, I think, uh, like, because obviously he's like our introduction to all the horrifying stuff that's going on. And we see him a lot at the start. We don't see him a whole lot through the middle. He's kind of just in the background. And then at the end, he has his big hero moment. But there's no real kind of arc to it. Like, a, there's a big chunk of the middle missing where we don't see him. Like, we're supposed to understand that uh, he goes from cowardly priest to heroic savior. But there's no connecting tissue there to make us understand how or why he he did that. I don't need more movie, to be honest. That, yeah, I know, that's true. But I feel like... Uh, it could have lost a couple of characters and, you know, gained a bit more character for him. Yeah. I want to talk a bit more about the movie in general just because it's the one that I feel less people know about. Yeah, yeah. Um, I find, like, this movie is a movie version of a Twilight Zone episode in the best way possible. Yeah, yeah. Because it's this pretty self-contained, idea-driven horror where the stakes are often ramped up, not through action or special effects, but characters talking and hinting at this larger yeah. mythos of like wars between gods and it's expositiony, but it's doled out at just the right moments to ratchet tension yeah. and also because it's a movie it's able to have that truly cosmic finale where everything goes nuts in a way that a twilight zone episode wouldn't be able to achieve yeah also when us came out the jordan peele movie i saw a lot of people comparing peele to carpenter and i never fully got that aside from them both being good directors yeah. who worked in horror but um i thought prince of darkness felt very peeled to me in the way it blended comedy and horror like there's yeah, a lot of very yeah. funny yeah, line deliveries the, and behavioral yeah. comedy like the kelly has the bruises on her arm and it's uh dennis dennis dunn i think his name is the yeah. asian the younger asian guy in it not victor wong and he says oh i used to break out all the time when i was a kid the doctor said i had homosexual tendencies yeah great line yeah and but there's also like there's little bits where the guy who before he gets killed he's like talking to his boss and he's like Good night, sir. And he's like, what's all this sir business? And he's like, okay. Good night, Dr. Sir. And he's like, <laughs> I like it. Better. <laughs> yeah. Um, as you mentioned there, it has um, quite a multiracial cast. Yeah, uh, it's yeah. maybe the most Asian characters I've seen in a mainstream Hollywood movie that wasn't about martial arts or crime. It's true, yeah. I was um, about to say Big Trouble in Little China, but no, that's a martial arts movie. <laughs> yeah, true. And like it has, it carries on Victor Wong and mm. Dennis Dunn, who are also in Big Trouble in yeah. Little China. And they're terrific. And yeah, it's great amazing. to yeah. see them play scientists. Yeah. You know? <laughs> And um, I also thought one scene in Prince of Darkness was lifted directly by Peele for Get Out. Do you know what I'm talking about? No. There's a scene where a black character played by Jesse Lawrence Ferguson um, is possessed by the goo. Is this the bit bit where he sings Amazing Grace? It's around that, but he's looking in the mirror and is crying laughing. And it's like... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The thing that has taken over his body and his consciousness are fighting. And it's very similar to the scene in Get Out with Betty Gabriel, who plays the housemaid. Yeah. That film, um, that's her big scene in the movie was like her going like, no, 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 no. And she's like crying and yeah, laughing. Yeah, yeah. And um, I think also Peel went on to narrate the recent Twilight Zone reboot. So there, there is some weird link there yeah, in between yeah, those. Yeah. 
Um, but you know, what was great about the, this horror series that we're doing is that all these movies are like 95 minutes it's, it's great. great it's yeah, so good it's so good not to watch fucking days of heaven or whatever the, the fuck. unbearable lightness of yeah being. that's it yeah, <laughs> yeah that's what i meant to say days yeah. of heaven um we should watch that That'd isn't cool. that i think isn't that only 90 minutes yeah long? i think it's very short <laughs> <laughs> um will we go from one horror auteur to another horror auteur let's go for it yeah yeah argento i kill it a whim and i make it a films <laughs> oh as an italian I find that really funny. Yeah, it so. is really funny, yeah. <laughs> you wrote yourself out, you silly girl. Come to get this damn machine. What on earth is going on around here? Is there someone there? Uh, what? Why? Who is it? Answer me! Who are you? Yeah, I'm a massive Dario Argento fan. I have a massive Suspiria poster hanging over my bed, which scares my girlfriend. Is it the one of the woman? Yeah, the it's... bloody corpse. Yeah, yeah. No, no, it's you a freak. You no, know, it's just um Susie. Uh, oh, holding okay, yeah, a yeah. knife, screaming. Yeah, 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 I know the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Deep Red and Tenebrae are also two of my favorite movies, and. I love Argento movies. They're so stylish and very scary. And like Carpenter, have those incredible scores that wiggle your way into their head. The score to Tenenbrae was literally sampled by Justice, the French <laughs> electro duo on their masterpiece, Cross. I really like Phenomena. I, I Even I have to admit that this premise strains credibility. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, in fact, it's low-key one of the weirdest movies ever. One would even say it's incredible. <laughs> uh, a teenage Jennifer Connelly who can talk to insects a wheelchair-bound Scottish insect expert played by Donald Pleasance and his helper monkey trying to solve a series of murders in the Swiss countryside based on how many creepy crawlies have ravaged their flesh. Mm. I'd argue that this batshit premise works for two reasons. Hit me with it. For all the communication with insects, the violent kills, those grotesque, in a great way, prosthetics, I think Phenomena is ultimately sort of an early Tim Burton-esque kind of creepy coming-of-age story about the struggles of being a teenager who doesn't fit in. And, uh, you know, in her new surroundings, Jennifer's bullied for her unique abilities. However, she learns to accept them with the help of the kind John, played by Pleasance, who ensures her in this rather touching extended scene, I know what it feels like to be different. People mm. have the ability to make you almost hate yourself, but you're in a position to do extraordinary things with yeah. this gift. And it's really lovely because you're watching these two outsiders who come from totally different backgrounds, who come friends. And while Pleasance is playing a very chipper man, here that hauntedness he just naturally projects is always looming beneath the surface. And we get a sense that he struggled after his car accident that left him in a wheelchair and it took him time to learn the advice he's bestowing onto yeah, yeah. young Jennifer Connelly. Also, the, the movie never gets too saccharine because the second reason the movie works is that that insane final third where... It might be some of the best stuff Argento's ever put on the screen. Like, I won't go into specifics, but it just keeps pulling the rug out from under you to almost a surreal level and is just packed with imagery that is uh, nightmare fuel. Yeah. What do you think of the movie? Um, I'm not a fan of Jallo movies, Stephen. I'll be honest. This isn't really a Jallo. That's though. true, but it has that. It has Jallo touches. It has yeah. the touches. And to be honest, it's the really wooden dialogue that puts me off. Yeah, it. I agree. Like, with I, can, I, can, I can get that. Yeah, it's like. I love all the set pieces and I love the music and I love the lighting and I love the costumes. It's just the woodenness of the characters and it's it's I, like there's a great line in 
uh, that Kurt Russell has in his narration in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood about um, he calls it the Tower of Babel way of uh, filmmaking in spaghetti westerns where everyone speaks their own language and then it's dubbed uh, which may yeah, or may not be true for Jalo yeah. Jal- movies yeah. um, but like it's so annoying to see and like for some reason it's only in Giallo movies like I'm fine with spaghetti westerns and I'm fine with lots of other movies that are dubbed uh, from other countries like that but it just doesn't sit well with me for some reason like I would love Suspiria if it was maybe just a little more uh, multilingual. Yeah, yeah. I really wish they just let people talk in their own accents yeah, and not yeah. have some people acting in Italian, some people acting in English, and then just like, well, we'll wing it. Yeah, <laughs> you know, absolutely. Yeah, because in the new Suspiria, it's like, oh, everyone around her is German or English or Ukrainian or whatever, and it's it, you know, no one cares. Yeah. Except Dario Argento, who hated the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I will say though. I, those things do annoy me about Jalo and, uh, and as much as I have an affection for the genre I don't like a lot of it but I, mm, I, I, yeah, I can't yeah. discount Argento because he's just such a good director you yeah. know what I mean like the style is so good the visuals are so good the music is so haunting yeah. that, uh, and the ideas are so good but there is even our Argento movies where I feel like with Jalo movies there's a lot of like oh, well, I have this kind of idea for a character let's just throw the shit at the wall and yeah. it's you're putting all these wacky elements together and it doesn't quite work but I think somehow Phenomena just it, it unifies I don't know I, I think it that's fair enough off. yeah I'm, what I think about this movie is that there's great potential here for like a goofy murder mystery kind of thing with uh, like oh it's an old man in a wheelchair with a monkey assistant and a psychic girl he's helping through her issues and that would make great two season TV that gets cancelled because no one was watching it do you like the third act though? where things get weird I do yeah it's, it's really great good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Dracula 1979 didn't watch it cool I did it, yeah. it's not called Dracula 1979 it was released in 1979 yeah. Pleasance appears in this well respected if not talked about too much uh, Dracula directed by John Badham who made Saturday Night Fever and, and stars Frank Langella Nixon um, yeah, it's this interesting Dracula movie because it's it's sort of a bridge between the older Hammer Draculas because it's mostly these British thespians and is a little more l- low budget and then the more like lavish, sexy and super stylish Coppola version of the 90s. So mm. I think it's a cool bridge between those two movies because, you know, the American Langella who really feels like an outsider amongst all these British people, I think that works quite well. And he's bringing this more elegant, seductive, swoony energy that I think is more in the Coppola movie. Yeah. So, so it's kind of like... The war of two styles yeah. is kind of compelling. Um, and also there's these like, sequences where the film goes from this gritty, washed out, shot in location British countryside to like full-blown music video aesthetics, like Dracula creeping straight down the side of a castle wall or the moment where Dracula makes sweet love to a woman and the screen goes blood red and we just see the two in silhouette and it's very cool. Ooh. And uh, the movie condenses the plot of the novel so we don't go to Transylvania ever. Instead, the Demeter ship which is taking Dracula to the seaside town of Whitby in England, where he's bought a house, uh, washes up on the beach, and he's the only survivor. Wonder why. Yeah. And after arriving, he forms this intense romantic relationship with Jonathan Harker's fiance named Lucy here instead of <gasps> Mina. So they get rid of the other Lucy? No, they just swap Lucy okay. and Mina around nice. because Badham didn't like the name Mina. He thought it sounded pretentious. So he was like, well, name the person who dies first, Mina, and we'll give Lucy... All right, yeah, I'll give him that. Yeah, Yeah. yeah, that's fair enough. Pleasance (laughs) is playing um, Dr. Seward, whose character is bumped up here, Pleasance's third build, and he's the administrator of an insane asylum not far from Dracula's English home where his slave Renfield ends up being kept. They also make him Lucy's father. Oh, okay. 
Is so, he is he a morphine addict like uh, Richard E. Grant is in the? No, he's not. Oh, that's disappointing. <laughs> oh, well. um, yeah, Doctor Seward is not the most interesting character in Dracula. Like he's the, he's the kind of posh British man of science who slowly comes to believe in Dracula's powers. Mm. And Pleasance is good at that. And Roger Ebert said in his going review of the movie that he provides a cheerful link to the express lane Draculas of Christopher Lee. I think what's most noteworthy about this version of Dracula is that Lucy is Mina in the novel, yeah. um, is less a damsel in distress and is maybe attracted to the Count as he's so unrepressed and so sexual compared to the other people in her town like her father. Like there's a bit where uh, Lucy sees Jonathan for the first time after he's come back from a long trip and she gives him a big smooch and her father is like, there, there, that's enough of that. Save that till you after you're married. Also, when Van Helsing's daughter is killed by Dracula the night, the next morning everyone is freaked out except Dr. Seward, who seems unfazed and he's wolfing down a full English breakfast and he looks kind of gross because there's like a runny egg oh. kind of thing. Also, there's another weird bit where he tells Van Helsing that he had prescribed Van Helsing's daughter laudanum for her nerves before she died. And then when his own daughter is acting up under Dracula's influence, someone suggests giving her laudanum and he's like, my own daughter? Certainly not. So the... It, it seems like his character is a little bit of a critique of a, of a certain type of upper class British person who's a bit stuffy yeah. and closed off emotionally and maybe acts in their own self-interest, uh, which I think is an interesting new layer to the story. It's not a massive part because there there is a bit of the movie where you think like, oh, Donald Pleasant's going to have his big action scene and they're like, you stay home, mind her. <laughs> and he's like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, do you want to talk about one of the kind of more janky British horror movies that you watched? It's an anthology film called Tales That Witness Madness and he plays Professor Tremaine who's a professor who believes he has cured four special cases of insanity when in fact he's gone insane along with the rest of them. Uh, so he has, he's, he has, he's kind of like Dr. Seward. He runs a mental asylum and in it there's these four patients who f- each have their own story and uh, he's kind of the one that introduces them all. He's like a horror host like that, that, mm. that like the Twilight Zone would have. And it's it's like something he did quite often like the, there's entire TV series that he did where he was just a horror host uh, just introducing stuff and uh, like the film itself is crap and poorly aged but it is a great example of Pleasance as, as an eyes and voice actor because he is the more he explains things the, like as each tale goes on the more crazy he looks he's like no I did I did cure them look at them they're fine they're not fine and neither <laughs> is he and that's about all I've got to say about it it's I wouldn't recommend it that's funny you said that because I was meant to mention one in Phenomena that a lot of his career is trying to make outlandish premises, you know, sound plausible. Outlandish. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? Like, um, yeah, he's talking about in in Phenomena when she says that she can speak to insects. He's like, it's not that unusual. You know, other animals can talk to each other over vast distances. So it's not that strange. We'd mm. see it in humans. And instead of being like, okay, pal, <laughs> cool. Yeah. Where you're like, I'm oh, going to yeah. leave now. I, I buy it for this movie. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I want to talk about the Twilight Zone episode he's in, which is called Changing of the Guard. Yeah. When I was one and 20, I heard a wise man say, give crowns and pounds and guineas but not your heart away. Give pearls away and rubies, but keep your fancy free. But I was one and twenty, no use to talk to me. The heart out of the bosom was never given in vain. Tis paid with sighs aplenty 
and sold for endless rue. And I am two and twenty, and oh, tis true, tis true. This is the last episode of the third season of The Twilight Zone, uh, the popular anthology series, which was a forerunner to shows that are big now, like Black Mirror or Inside Number 9 or Love, Death, Robots, where each episode was a different story. Um, it was the 37th episode of the third season, to be exact, oh, wow. which is wild, because I won't watch a show if it's over 13 episodes, <laughs> sometimes even 10. It's actually not a very spooky episode, but it is rather great, and I can imagine it would play even better after watching 36 other episodes because it's it's Rod Sterling who was the original showrunner his tribute to literature and the people who taught him the subject in school can i do the intro go for it yeah professor ellis fowler a gentle bookish guide to the young who is about to discover that life still has certain surprises and that the campus of rock spring school for boys lies on a direct path to another institution commonly referred to as the twilight zone <sighs> do 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 <laughs> Yeah, essentially Pleasance, who was 42 at the time of filming and was made to look older, and it actually works really well. Mm. Uh, plays this lovely English teacher who uh, loves his work, um, who just before Christmas is forced into retirement after 51 years at the school teaching. And he, he's blindsided by the news and he starts reminiscing over his life and falls into a depression and starts thinking that he's accomplished nothing with his life and that his lessons meant nothing. Yeah, And uh, he ponders suicide, but spoilers... Before he kills himself, he's visited by the ghosts of former pupils who died doing heroic things. A few were killed in Iwo Jima. Others died saving people at Pearl Harbor. One died of leukemia after being exposed to x-rays during research for cancer treatments. And they all tell him that the words that the teacher taught them inspired them to become better men and that he made a difference. And, um, you know, as I said, it's not a classic Twilight Zone, but it's a really lovely episode filled with beautiful dialogue and all these old quotes yeah and it was pleasance's first appearance in something american and it's a great distillation of all the things that make him great because that he was able to turn something that in a lesser actor's hands could be saccharine and, and a kind of a christmas carol knockoff mm, yeah into something that feels important and profound and you know and the episode clocks in at 25 minutes and the character undergoes quite a shift and he goes from this pleasant old man who seems happy and contented to i walked from class to class an old relic teaching by rote to unhearing ears, unwilling heads. I was an abject, dismal failure. I moved nobody. I motivated nobody. I left no imprint on anybody. Now, where do you suppose I ever got the idea that I was accomplishing anything? And you do buy that difference because there's always that darkness, that fire looming under... Hey, Loomis. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Underneath when he plays sympathetic characters so that when it comes out, you buy the shift a little more. But you also like him and you like the character because they're so compelling and when he has his you know what day is it sir yeah. moment you are delighted and you can even say it's donald pleasant yeah get me a copy of a tale of two cities <laughs> yeah any more donald pleasant thoughts or any other films you'd like to mention no i no? meant to watch that vampire in venice uh, movie he's in with klaus kinski but i never got around rate and review subscribe wherever you get podcasts email us at i know that face at gmail.com if you'd like to be on the show or you have a suggestion of someone you'd like us to cover follow us on twitter at i know that face one follow us on instagram and i know that face thanks again to charlene fernandez for running the page um i also want to thank jenny murphy byrne for her lovely write-up of the podcast in the business post where we were chosen podcast of the week it was yeah. amazing yeah thank you very much jenny Andrew, where can people find more of your work? You can find me at the Headstuff Gaming section where we talk about what we play, why we play, and how we play it. 
you can find me on the Headstuff film section where I'll be posting articles. See you later, Cinephiles. Bye-bye. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network. If you want to support this podcast and get a full ad-free episode, sign up to Headstuff Plus. 